We are full swing into the new year, and this is episode 12 of Shifflet Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 12 of Shifflet It's a new year, and New Year's many times come with New Year's resolutions. And the question I have is, am I making any New Year's resolutions? I've been kind of hot and cold with this over the years. Sometimes I don't make resolutions because I just feel like, well, it's, it's a new year, but that doesn't mean I have to go out and change everything. And sometimes I feel very strongly about making resolutions. So I have three resolutions that I'm going to be making this year because I feel like I'm in a place of readiness. The first has to do with my food. I need to cut out sugar and flour. I've been struggling since my episode, Hi, I'm a Food Addict. And um, I just, I feel so much better when those substances are out of my system. My brain fog clears up. I have more mental clarity. Um, I have more energy. I just, I feel better. So I'm really focusing these next few weeks on getting sugar and flour out of my system. The second resolution that I'm making is to pray morning prayer and evening prayer every day. Um, after the seminary, I got out of the habit of praying the divine office which is a shame because I'm a Benedictine oblate and the Divine Office um, is an int integral part of the Benedictine spirituality. But um, I should do an episode on this with a couple seminarians who have left. I don't think it's a foreign experience. Um, I, I don't think it's uncommon is what I'm trying to say to um, experience a kind of spiritual lull after you leave the seminary. You go from a place of um, intense hand-holding spiritually to a place where um, there's nothing. There's no structure. People view you differently. It's hard to fit in in uh, religious circles. Um, without being seen as the seminarian or the former seminarian. And um, it's rough. So anyway, um, my, my resolution is to pray morning prayer and evening prayer every day. And my third resolution has to do with the podcast. Now, the format of the podcast has been up and down since December 12th, since that first episode on Our Lady of Guadalupe came out. It started with one episode a week, and then I released a bonus episode, and then it moved to three episodes a week, and then I added long-form conversations twice a month, and then I added bonus episodes for patrons on Saturdays only. And if you do the math, that's anywhere from 18 to 20 episodes a month. That is the definition of insanity. And um, those decisions were made during bouts of hypomania. I had so much energy. I wanted new, different, better, more, new, different, better, more. And um, I 
made a lot of decisions uh, about the podcast. I'm coming down off of hypomania now as I'm getting my medications, as I'm taking them more consistently and I'm getting more stable. And I just can't keep up. I just cannot keep up with that pace. Um, 18 to 20 episodes a month is ridiculous. And here's the thing. Nobody can follow that. If I want listeners to listen regularly, I need to be putting out content um, at a pace that they can follow. (laughs) And I wouldn't want to listen to 18 to 20 episodes a month. So why should I expect anyone else to? So it's a new year. New year, new me. New year, new Shiflet Here's the plan. The plan is to do two episodes a week. A long episode on Wednesdays where I cover Catholicism, pop culture, and the news. And then a shorter episode on Saturdays. These were the patrons-only episodes, but I kind of came to the realization that Patreon just doesn't align with my values. I just... I want the podcast to be free. I don't want a paywall. I don't want um, exclusive content for particular people. Um, So... There's that. There's also the fact that I I didn't get any patrons. <laughs> I didn't get a single one. So why make all this content that nobody's going to listen to? I would rather um I'd rather release it for everybody. So that's what I'm going to do. Saturday's episodes are going to be fun. I'm going to sit down with a friend and we're going to go through some very important questions. Essentially they're conversation starters. And so far, they've done exactly that. They've started some really interesting conversations. Um, there used to be, uh, there used to be a podcast way back in the day called Tangent Cast, and basically they would start with a topic, and then they would just talk and talk and talk, and go wherever the conversation took them, um, mostly on tangents. But that's the idea, is we start with these quote-unquote very important questions, and then we kind of go wherever. So, um, Wednesdays and Saturdays. Wednesday will be Philip talking, Saturdays will be sitting down with friends. I also want to try to do two long-form conversations every month. Um, I'll see how that works out. Uh, I have them planned through March because that is what I am want to do. And, um, I, well, I have the guests in mind. They haven't, none of them have said yes yet. Uh, I haven't asked them. So that's, that's on my to-do list for this week. But, uh, that's the plan for the podcast is to scale it back again. Um, scale it back a bit so that people can actually follow along, uh, so that people don't have to keep up with my hypomania. We have a lot in store for this podcast today. Some Lexio Divina on um, the Epiphany readings, my review of 
the 2019 film Nomadland, no, 2020, 2020 film Nomadland, uh, an interview with my dad, who used to live out of his truck and in a mobile home. And then um, a little bit of the news, and then uh, some Harry Potter stuff. We're still going through the Harry Potter books. Um, I will be doing um, four or five chapters a week now, and that should be fun. So stick around after the break, and we'll jump in right away. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and ascertained from them the time of the star's appearance. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word, that I too may go and do him homage. After their audience with the king, they set out. And behold, the star that they had seen at its rising preceded them, until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. They were overjoyed at seeing the star, and on entering the house they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They prostrated themselves and did him homage. Then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their country by another way. They departed for their country by another way. I'll never forget a homily that Father, now Bishop, Robert Barron gave on the Epiphany readings. His insight was this, once you come to Christ, once you have an experience of Christ himself, you can't go back the same way you came. They departed for their country by another way. You can't go back the same way you came. We come to Christ, and we are changed ontologically in our very being. When we are baptized and claimed for him, our very being is different. And we are assured in the Bible that he will never forsake or abandon us. He will never forsake or abandon us. We may desert him. We may flee him as the apostles fled him at the cross but we are forever changed, and he will never forsake us or abandon us. If the meeting is authentic, if our encounter with Christ is, is a living one, a true one, then it has a lasting impact on us. I know that for myself, in my darkest moments, in my moments of deep mental distress, in my moments of profound sinfulness, I can't imagine leaving the church. I just can't. I cannot imagine leaving. St. Augustine said, We are restless until our hearts rest in God. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. This is what he writes. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. My heart finds its fulfillment in Christ. And once I get a taste of that, leaving is unconscionable to me. I may have my moments in the ditch. 
but I'm never far from the road. I know where the road is. I know where the road's going. I know how to get back on the road. And I'm not going to stray too far. Because I know what it's like to have a relationship with Christ. The prayer after communion at the Vigil Mass of the Feast of the Epiphany reads, Renewed by sacred nourishment, we implore your mercy, O Lord, that the star of your justice may shine always bright in our minds, and that our true treasure may ever consist in our confession of you. That's where my true treasure is at. Ever consisting in my confession of you. When I experience you, when I encounter you, my heart has found its fulfillment. I'm at peace. I'm in the presence of love. I'm satisfied. And I can't go back the same way that I came. They departed for their country by another way. Let's pray on this Feast of the Epiphany for fidelity, that we may ever remain faithful to the call of God. God is calling us to be saints. He's calling us to fill ourselves with him. And that's a supernatural call. We need his help. And he's there, arm outstretched, ready to give it to us. So let's pray that we might be faithful to that and receive all that he wants to give us in this new year. Last week I mentioned that I was going to start reviewing the Academy Award winners for Best Picture. And I started last week with the 2019 winner, Parasite. This week I'm hopping over to 2020 and reviewing Nomadland which, reading from Wikipedia now, is a 2020 American drama film uh, based on the 2017 nonfiction book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. It stars Frances McDormand as a van-dwelling working nomad who leaves her home after her husband dies and the sole industry in her town closes down to be quote-unquote houseless and travel around the United States. So Nomadland was an interesting movie, and I've got some thoughts on it. Um, basically, I'm going to share my thoughts, and then after we come back from the break, I'm going to sit down with my dad, who used to live out of his car, and also lived in a mobile home park. So he has some experience of mobile living, and that's going to be a really fun conversation. Nomadland is a long look at the life of a contemporary nomad. We follow Fern, living her everyday life, working different jobs, sleeping in different places, meeting different people. Nomadland is slow, mostly unaccompanied by music. Its pacing is perhaps intentional, mirroring the pace of the life of a mobile liver. As people in the technological age, we are so used to everything being fast-paced, and the life of the nomad is a judgment against that. There's no conflict that drives the plot. It's more of a vignette, a magnified look at one life. If you're looking for a thriller, this isn't it. But there is a lot to learn from Fern and her adventures. The importance of silence. 
the freedom of independence and the chilling beauty of the American landscape. Bleak, haunting, drawn out, but also a top-notch character study that's off the beaten path. And here is um, a bonus review from a friend of mine who is currently living as a nomad. She and her friend uh, bought an RV, and they're currently in the midst of renovating it, and then they plan to travel around the United States. She said, I've seen the movie, and I thought it was an interesting look at nomad life. It was a sort of sad and disheartening situation, but held a lot of intriguing truths to the nomad lifestyle. I ended up feeling like it was a good documentary that ultimately gives people a look at nomad life that isn't fully glamorized. But it felt a bit like it leaned towards the other extreme. I'd like to see a middle-of-the-road documentary about nomad life that isn't glamorized and isn't all doom and gloom either. One about someone who chooses the nomad life not for monetary or other forces, but someone who choose it, chooses it because it feels like a right fit for what they want their life to be, despite the challenges of it and what society thinks of them for it. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's my uh, first time on a podcast, so I have a few jitters. Oh, that's okay. We'll get... Jiggled out. Yeah. Um, why don't you begin with uh, your name and who you are and how you know me? Um, my name is Jeff Shiflett. I'm your father, and basically I'm the first person in your family that met you because I was there at your birth. All right. And um, so today we're talking about the movie Nomadland, which I believe you mentioned to me that you saw. Yes, I did. And um, you have a particular interest in um, mobile living. Um, your interest includes uh, watching videos on van life on YouTube, but you have some personal experience of mobile living too, is that right? Uh, correct, correct. Uh I don't know if you want me to go into them or what my first experience with mobile living. Yeah. Um, a very good friend, childhood friend of mine, um, parents used to spend the winter or parts of the winter down in a little town called Nyland down by the Salton Sea. And there's an old uh, army base called Fort Dunlop. They call it Slab City now because that's all that's left is the slabs. But many, many years ago, I used to go down there in the wintertime and ride my motorcycles. And and I was exposed to the people living in their vehicles and maybe a trailer or some type of tiny home they built out of the uh, the whatever they could gather down there. So uh, fast forward a few years. Uh, how old were you at this time? Uh, or back then, probably anywhere from 15 to in my early 20s. Okay. Uh, so fast forward a few years. Uh, I had lived with my aunt uh, 
and uh, I decided uh, that I, or my aunt decided she wanted to move in with her children, so I uh, I had at the time a, a Toyota with a shell, a Toyota truck, long bed with a shell on it, so uh, I decided I was going to live in that for a while and, and try that out. How long, how long did you live in the Toyota truck? Uh, probably about four and a half months. Oh, wow. Okay. So what, what was that like? Where did you, where did you shower? Where did you bathe? Where did you eat? Um, well, okay. I was, I was working, so it's not like I didn't have a job. I just, I, I needed a, a place to stay. But what I realized is I had a place to stay. So um, I figured out I built some shelving in there, and I built a bed. Um, I had camping gear, so uh, I had a P.O. box so I could still receive my mail. Um, I drove out to my job, and I worked out in uh, Corona, California, and I belonged to a gym. So this was uh, 45 years ago. 40 years or so, I don't know how many years, no, not 45, well, maybe, anyway, um, so I would uh, work all day and then drive, there was a couple of different gyms that uh, were in a chain, it was Jack Lane's European Health Spa, I met old Jack himself, I shook his hand when his gym in Fullerton opened, so uh, I would shower, I would work out, and then I would shower, and uh, then I would go off to some place to cook my dinner. I didn't eat out a lot because I was saving money. But uh, a lot of times, if it was it was in the rainy season that I lived in my truck, so a lot of times if it was raining, and back then in California we did have rain, I would go at uh, to a car wash, those self car washes, and they're covered. So there I would be open with my trunk, uh, my my bed, my. Uh, uh, shell lid open and and cook my dinner. Did you have like a, a camping stove or something like that? Yes, a camping stove. Uh, I didn't have a refrigerator or ice box, but I would go to the store and buy what I needed to eat then. Okay. And you lived, um, you also lived in a mobile home park. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. Well, after the four months... Uh, I thought, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I was saving my money the whole time, and I saved enough money, and I took out a loan and bought a travel trailer, twenty, a 21-foot travel trailer, and I lived in that. I found a, I found a place to uh, park it, but after I moved in and moved into it, the uh, the place sold and closed down, so I had to find another place to go to. And bef- when I was searching, and I was searching out in the Riverside area so that I wouldn't have to drive so much, I found a place, but it was maybe 30 trailers there, and they had one open spot, but they were all older people, and they didn't really want me to move in, or at least the manager didn't, because she thought I would be playing loud music and <laughs> all the things 20-year-olds do, you know. Uh, so finally, I, I don't know if it wasn't renting or whatever, she called me, and I got in. And I'll tell you, before 
even a week was over, I had people coming over to me asking me, hey, uh, can you lift my propane tank out of my truck because it was empty, but I've got, they were all old people. Uh, it's too heavy for me now. So I would actually come home from work and many, many days there were people waiting for me to get home so I could lift something for them. And so it all worked out good. I never had any problems uh, with the people at that park. And how long did you live in the mobile home park? I would say uh, uh, probably four years. Oh, four years. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a bit. Yeah. Did you, um, it was a travel trailer. Were you traveling around at the time? Did you go on camping trips and stuff? Or did you stay mostly in that? Okay, that travel trailer was my home. I didn't have anything to pull pull it with. I just okay. had a, a small truck. And uh, so I kind of use that as my base of operations. Uh, and I'll give you the financial breakdown because this is what is so appealing about it. Uh, m I paid rent. My rent for one month was $90. My rent for my uh, electric bill was averaged about $20 a month. And I had a phone bill of uh, $20 a month. So uh, that gave me the rest of my money to live on, play on, save, uh, and I was always working. I, I, never, I never was without a job. So um, I was able to save money and do a lot of fun things with my time, free time. One of them was I met your mother during that time. And... Uh, uh, even though I was uh, trailer park trash, uh, <laughs> I guess that's a term. That's a uh, a mis a misnomer. A misnomer. Uh, we fell in love and got married, and uh, I tr I tried to get her to have us buy a bigger model so we could live in the trailer park, and she did look. And we looked, but I think in the end, it was just best to get an apartment. We got an apartment. Okay. I want to come back to that, but I have another question. What, what did you like better? Did you like living in your truck better or in the mobile home park? Or were they just different? Um, I think they were different because with my truck... I had my home with me everywhere I went. So it didn't matter. I would sometimes park at a bowling alley. Sometimes I would show up at my parents' house. But I, I usually, I always tried to sleep in my vehicle. Not, you know, I didn't want to be one of those couch guys. So um, I felt more, I felt very independent. When I was in my trailer, I felt it more like a home but it was still very, very economical. Okay. Now, I remember part of the movie Nomadland. Um, the main character, Fern, comes across, I don't remember if it's neighbors or family, and they're very, very worried for her. And one, one of the girls asks her, are you homeless again? Or mom said you're homeless. And Fern responds with, 
I'm houseless at the moment, but I'm not homeless. Did you ever get any reactions like that when you were living out of your truck from family or friends thinking, oh, Jeff is homeless or like, not was their judgment, but did they look down on you? Did they pity you? I don't think so because they knew what kind of a person I was and I was committed to doing this. I mean, it, you know, I was committed to it. I wanted to do it. My my mother helped me make curtains for the uh, for the back of the truck, and uh, I would often stop by conveniently at dinner time by my dad, or when I need you know I I wouldn't have a shower so I'd take a shower and they were having dinner so I would have dinner with them but I never uh, I never felt like they pitied me or anything like that. Okay, that's good. That's good. So you married my mother, and how long after you got married did you buy... We have a travel trailer. Mm-hmm. How long after you got married did you buy that? Um, well, actually, we had the old one because I still had it. I didn't get rid of it. Oh, okay. So um, we drugged that out of storage, which was down at my mom's place, and... Uh, we brought it home and we refurbished it. And actually, by when we uh, we camped in it for shoot up until you were probably uh, your sister Monique was on the way. Mom, mom was pregnant with Monique when uh, when we took our first camping trip in the new trailer. So we sold the old trailer. Um, and it, I forgot what year it was. It was a, like a 1980 or even maybe even a 70-something. We, we sold it for $3,000, which is, is – I bought it and used it for all those years living in it for $3,500 I bought it for. Wow. So – And you somehow you sold it for $3,000. Yeah, yeah, I did. Wow. That's amazing. So we use that money to buy the new trailer, yeah. which is not so new anymore because it's probably 27 years old. Holy mackerel. So you, um, that's really interesting. You have, you have a interest in mobile living. Can you tell us a bit about um, what kinds of accounts you follow on YouTube? Uh, I follow... Um, the van life community. They're my, I jokingly call them my YouTube family. I have a lot of members to my YouTube family because of COVID. Uh, I was, I, I, uh, I don't like TV anymore, really. I just watch YouTube and I'm, uh, I, I, I really enjoy it. And I, I like the fact that these people are out there because if you, if you're a young person right now, it's really hard to make ends meet with rent and food and uh, health care and uh, what have you. So I really enjoy the fact that these people are out there traveling. Some people, some of the people that I follow travel the world. Some people travel not only in vans, but they travel in, uh, in, in sailboats. Um, some of the people uh, um, are travel single like one person, some of them travel married, some of them travel uh, uh, with a 
other people. I mean, they have like caravans, just like in the movie, you know, yeah. and they and they stay with other people and they have these little communities. There's like a sub subculture of people with the same interests and the same lifestyle. Just because a person lives in a big old house doesn't mean that that person has uh, any different, I don't know what the word is, doesn't mean they don't have any other different life values than somebody that doesn't live in a, in a big old house. Uh, big old house uh, doesn't make the person, you make the person. Yeah. So, um, I feel bad for people that are homeless. Um, we need to do more to uh, help the homeless, help the root of the problem of being homeless. Uh, but some people just like being homeless too. And I won't say that uh, some people like being in a van, and I'm sure there's some people who just don't want any, they don't have to pay anything. And when you're in a, when you're in a mobile living situation, you're not tied down. You don't have to stay in one place. Some people do because they're still working. But when retirement age hits, why should you just sit around the same house every day? It doesn't mean you can't have a base of operation, but you shouldn't have to pay through the nose to see this country. Anyway, we live in a free country, but not necessarily free when you go to a campground. Right. Are you interested in getting back into van life yourself? I, I really would like to try something like that. Okay. I really would. Somewhere where you can be a little stealthy, you can park in the city and not have to tell people. And then that's the way I used to do it so many years ago. I would park under a sign at a bowling alley and sleep there over the night. And I had my special places that I always went. But, uh, you know... Um, I, I, and I, I know some people are uncomfortable with it, uh, but I don't know. I, I just think there's not enough, there, life is too expensive, uh, especially where we live, uh, for people to always be able to have a brick and mortar place. Yeah. Is that something that, um, you think would be like a retirement project or, in terms of the timeline, do you think it would be sooner than that? When are when are you kicking me out of the house? Is what I'm, I'm asking. I'm not kicking you out of the house. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I think it would be uh, maybe before I retire, so that I can get all my ducks in a row and and then be able to go and see places. And I'm not a okay. So I'm not one of those people who uh, plan a lot, right? And that's why I kind of like that idea because you can go somewhere but not really plan it as opposed to having to get a, a reservation for a hotel or this and that. And it's, it's very economical. All right. Any further or final thoughts on mobile living? Um, yeah, don't knock it until you tried it, you know. Go out and rent a camper van and and uh, try it out. I did it many years ago, uh, and I had no problem with it. I had my mail, I had my shower, I had my food, uh, and I didn't. I wasn't on any type of public assistance or anything. So I was I was making, it, and I was happy. 
I was really happy. Now, sometimes there's a lonely side to it sometimes, you know, if you're not living with family. Uh, and I don't know how that would be, is going to be later on, but if you, I can always come back, right? Absolutely. So. And that is true for the podcast as well. You can always come back. Yeah, because we got some other things to talk about, but. Uh, yes, yes, we do. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for right. being with us. Okay, Philip. Thank All you. Right. Okay, the news. What is in the news? Well, there was a headline over at ncregister.com, and the headline reads this. Uproar over Chicago Mass. Did theatrical Christmas Eve liturgy go too far? Reading now from the Register... Outraged by a freewheeling Christmas Eve Mass, some Catholics are calling on Cardinal Blaise Supich to crack down on liturgical abuses in Novus Ordo Masses in the Archdiocese of Chicago, rather than imposing severe restrictions on reverential traditional Latin Masses. The Mass in question featured jazz musicians, choreographed dances around the altar, and theatrical lighting effects. Father Michael L. Fledger, a well-known social activist in Chicago, celebrated the December 24th Evening Mass, which was live-streamed from St. Sabina Church, a predominantly black parish on the city's south side. Father Fledger has been pastor there since 1981. Many of those upset by the Mass say it crossed the line from worship to entertainment. That view is fueled, in part, by the fact that it is not clear from the nearly two-and-a-half-hour video of what was billed as Christmas Eve at Sabina when the, litur when the liturgy actually begins. There is no apparent greeting, penitential act, or opening prayer, all required by introductory rites of the Novus Ordo liturgy. In the video... Uh, posted on YouTube, Father Fledger does not appear on the altar until after nearly an hour of music, musical and dance performances. A band plays a mix of religious carols and secular music, including Stevie Wonder's Overjoyed and the Vincent Guaraldi trio's Christmas Time is Here, best known from the Peanuts Christmas special of Charlie Brown Christmas, while colorfully costumed dancers swirl around the altar. In one of the video's most jarring segments prior to Father Fledger's arrival, a woman reads a reflection on racism, gun violence, and other social ills. The woman shouts at some points while figures near the altar, including some dressed in hooded cloaks that resemble Ku Klux Klan robes, dramatize her words. Uh, yada 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 yada, flashing lights and loud beeping of a heart monitor sound effect add to the bleak litany of evils, um, which nonetheless ends on a positive note. Heaven has heard your cry and responded by sending Jesus, the light of the world, to renew your strength. Emmanuel, God is with you. During his homily, Father Fledger, wearing a peace sign dangling from a beaded necklace, urges members of the congregation to lift up their illuminated cell phones in the darkened church, as is often done at concerts. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Jesus, the light of the world, is with us, he says. Now go turn on the damn light and curse the darkness. Come on, wave your lights. Wave your lights. This article is disheartening for a number of reasons. It's disheartening because 
I feel like, for the most part, people don't know what happens at Mass. People do not know what happens at Mass. There was the Pew Research Survey back in 2019 that basically said only one-third of U.S. Catholics believe in transubstantiation. And there's been some criticism about that survey, um, criticism about the sample size, criticism about the fact that different surveys have gotten different results, criticizing uh, criticism about the wording of the survey. But it's an interesting benchmark, um, that survey, and it tells us something. It tells us that our generation of Catholics is woefully under-catechized. Either that, or the churches are just filled with non-believers who keep coming back week after week, even though they don't believe in the central precepts of the church to which they, were, to which they go. But I have a feeling it has to do with under-catechesis. Now, here's, here's the survey that I want to do. Take Father Fledger's Mass and randomly interview 10 people walking out of that Mass and ask them the following questions. In two sentences or less, describe exactly what happened in that church. In two sentences or less, describe exactly what happened in that church. The question is, what happens at Mass? And the answer is, the priest, on behalf of the people, offers Jesus Christ to the Father as a kind of representation of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. Jesus becomes present and we consume him, body, blood, soul, and divinity, present under the species of bread and wine. That's what happens at Mass. Mass is a representation of the once and for all sacrifice. The priest, literally, in the presence of the people of God, offers the perfect sacrifice to the Father. The priest offers Jesus. Jesus, through the priest, offers himself. It's marvelous. It's an inexhaustible mystery. An inexhaustible mystery. And unfortunately... I have a feeling that most people would say, we sang songs and Father gave a nice homily. We sang songs and Father gave a nice homily. Hopefully it was a nice homily. The KKK was there, apparently. You know, I kind of chuckled when I read that part of the um, article. I... I <laughs> There are several religious orders who have habits that might be mistaken for the KKK. I'd have to have I'd have to have seen the hood on those things, but um it was it was an interesting sort of throwaway comment in the article. I'm surprised that the um 
that the editor didn't catch that. Unless, of course, it was intended to be a representation of the KKK at a significantly black parish. In which case, that's some weird theater for Christmas Eve. That's weird. That's odd. Um, I don't know what the message of that was supposed to be. But um, having the KKK dance around the altar is a step too far. Now, there is a question here. Is liturgy theater? Is liturgy theater? I think it's an interesting question. And I think the answer is yes and no. Oh, the good Catholic answer. Yes and no. Liturgy is theater if, by theater you mean well-rehearsed, everything in its right place, scripted, everyone on the same page, people moving from point A to point B intentionally and with purpose. I think in those senses, liturgy is theater. But the problem is when liturgy becomes theatrical. When you start having liturgy as entertainment instead of liturgy as worship. Now it's a fine line because you want the people to be full, active, conscious participators in the sacrifice. But they're supposed to participate in offering the sacrifice and not simply sit back and be entertained. My heart goes out to music directors and liturgists who have to walk that fine line of motivating the people to participate without turning it into entertainment. It's a shame. This, this article is a shame. The picture attached... Uh, to the news article is a shame. It appears as if a priest is holding the book of the Gospels over the altar, and behind him are lights, strobes of lights, red, green, yellow, maybe some blue, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, three colors, maybe just the primary colors. The secondary colors were for the Christmas Day liturgy. <laughs> um, yeah, things you'd see at a rock concert. I'm not trying to demonize rock music. I love me some good rock and roll. But things I've seen at a Trans-Siberian Orchestra concert. Or things that I've seen at a Mannheim Steamroller concert. Things that you see at a concert. Not at divine liturgy. Not at divine worship not at holy sacrifice of the Mass. We're taking things too far, folks. We're straying. We are straying from what happens at Mass. People don't know. People do not know what happens at Mass. And um, it's partially it's up to us to educate, to catechize, to instruct. That's um, a work of mercy. Instruct the ignorant. Let's continue to pray that we enter more deeply into the liturgy and pray for priests. 
Pray for priests who celebrate the liturgy, that they may celebrate reverently and with great devotion. Reverently and with great devotion. We need a renewal in our church, a, re a, a liturgical renewal, a renewal of the renewal. So let's pray. Lots to pray for. And, um, and when we come back from the break, we'll be continuing our journey with Harry Potter, Ron, and their new friend, Hermione. Okay, we begin our, well, we continue, rather, our journey with Harry through Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Last week's episode was a full episode on the Sorting Hat and the Potions Master chapters, and now we resume our um, Philip alone doing his analysis in his room by himself for ten minutes uh, kind of journey. <laughs> so without further ado, here are the chapter summaries from sparknotes.com. Chapter 9, The Midnight Duel. Harry is upset by news that the Gryffindors will have flying lessons with the Slytherins, because he does not want to spend more time with his Slytherin enemy Draco Malfoy. Madame Hooch leads the class, gently sending the new flyers off the ground. Neville has an accident and breaks his wrist. Madame Hooch takes him to the hospital, telling everyone to stay on the ground while she is away. Malfoy notices a magic ball belonging to Neville, picks it up, and begins to fly around with it. Harry goes after Malfoy, who throws the ball in the air. Harry catches it, spectacularly, and lands safely back on ground. Just then, Professor McGonagall arrives, reprimanding Harry and ordering him to follow her. But instead of punishing him, McGonagall introduces him to Oliver Wood, captain of the Gryffindor Quidditch team, explaining that Harry will make an excellent Quidditch player. At dinner, Harry excitedly tells Ron about joining the Quidditch team, but tells him that Wood wants it to be secret. Malfoy comes over with his cronies, Crab and Goyle, and teases Harry about getting in trouble earlier. The tension grows, and Malfoy challenges Harry to a wizard's duel. Harry accepts, in spite of Hermione's attempt to dissuade them from breaking the school rules. As Harry and Ron sneak out later that night, Hermione tries to stop them, but gets locked out of the dorm and must tag along. Neville, wandering around lost, also joins them. They arrive at the trophy room the site of the duel, but Malfoy is nowhere to be found. Suddenly they hear Argus Filch, the school caretaker, and his cat, Mrs. Norris, enter the room. They begin to hide and then run away. Not sure where they are going, they accidentally end up in the forbidden area on the third floor, staring at a large and scary three-headed dog. The children manage to get back to their dorm safely, though they are terrified. Hermione reprimands Harry, but stirs his curiosity by pointing out that the dog was standing on a trap door. Chapter 10. Halloween. The next morning, Harry and Ron are discussing what the dog could be guarding when the mail arrives. 
Harry receives a first-class broomstick, along with a note from Professor McGonagall summoning him to Quidditch practice. Malfoy tells Harry that first-year students are not allowed broomsticks. When he tries to report Harry to Professor Flitwick, Flitwick just expresses admiration for Harry's talent. Harry later meets Oliver Wood to learn the basics of Quidditch. On Halloween, Flitwick begins teaching his students how to make things fly. Only Hermione succeeds. Ron, offended by her air of superiority, makes a nasty comment that Hermione overhears. Harry notices her running off in tears. Harry and Ron arrive at the Halloween feast to hear Professor Quirrell, the teacher of Defense Against the Dark Arts, give a terrifying announcement about a 12-foot troll in the building. As the prefects lead the students back to their dorms, Harry realizes that Hermione does not know about the troll. They head off to warn her and come upon the troll. Unwittingly, they lock it in the girls' bathroom, only to realize that Hermione is trapped in there with the troll. Using teamwork and magic, the three of them manage to knock out the troll. Professor McGonagall finds them and begins to scold the boys. Hermione interjects that Harry and Ron were looking for her. She then lies, saying that she went to face the troll herself, and that Ron and Harry had been trying to save her from it. At this point, Hermione becomes their friend. Chapter 11 The Quidditch season begins, and Harry is about to play in his first match against Slytherin. To prepare, Harry borrows a book entitled Quidditch Through the Ages from Hermione. Professor Snape discovers Ron, Harry, and Hermione out with the book one evening and confiscates it from Harry on the feeble pretext that library books may not be taken outside. Harry's suspicions of Snape continue to grow. Harry notices that Snape is limping. Going off to retrieve the book from Snape, Harry overhears Snape talking to Argus Filch about the three-headed dog, which makes Harry even more suspicious. The next morning, the Quidditch match begins. Harry plays the position of Seeker, which means that he must capture a little object called the Golden Snitch. He spots it and is flying toward it when the Slytherin Seeker pushes him out of the way and is penalized. Later in the game, Harry's broom begins moving uncontrollably. Hagrid comments that only dark magic could make a broomstick so hard to manage. Hermione notices that Snape is staring at Harry and muttering to himself. As the Weasley twins try to rescue their teammate Harry, Hermione rushes over to Snape, sneaks behind him, and sets his robe on fire. Suddenly, the spell on Harry's broom is broken, and Harry is once again in control. He starts speeding toward the ground and lands, catching the snitch. Hagrid takes Harry back to his hut with Ron and Hermione, who tells Harry that Snape was putting a curse on his broomstick. Hagrid does not believe this charge, asking why Snape would try to kill Harry. Harry tells Hagrid about Snape getting injured by the dog in the third-floor corridor. Hagrid involuntarily reveals that the three-headed dog, Fluffy, is his, and that what the gar dog is guarding is a secret known only to Albus Dumbledore and a man named Nicholas Flamel. got a couple of things to reflect about um, on these two chapters of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The first thing is, it feels like Harry has made his home here at Hogwarts. Uh, J.K. Rowling says as much. 
um, quote, perhaps it was because he was now so busy, what with Quidditch practice three evenings a week on top of all his homework, but Harry could hardly believe it when he realized that he'd already been at Hogwarts two months. The castle felt more like home than Privet Drive ever had, unquote. Harry makes his home here at Hogwarts, and, um, Deacon Dalton and I talked last week about the kind of wonder and awe that Harry has. And I feel like a lot of that now, a couple of months in, is gone. This wonder and awe has been replaced with um, being more comfortable in the castle. Wonder and awe has been replaced with this feeling of familiarity. That things are less new and becoming more um, part of a natural rhythm of his life. He feels at home, more like home than Privet Drive ever had felt. And there's a comment that he makes that kind of tipped me off to this. Harry says, typical, just what I always wanted, to make a fool of myself on a broomstick in front of Malfoy. I kind of chuckled when I read that. It's a phrase, just what I always wanted. It's an idiom. But it's really not just what you always wanted, because until two or three months ago, you had never heard of Hogwarts. You have never heard of witches and wizards and the wizarding world, and you didn't know that your parents had died in a freak accident, um, slaughtered by one of the most evil wizards of all time. Like, you thought they died in a car crash up until a couple months ago. So, just what I always wanted is is not true. <laughs> it's not just what you always wanted. Well, that's what he's saying. It's not just what he always wanted. Um, but the quote, uh, the quote gives away the fact that Harry feels comfortable here. He feels like this place is his home in such a way where he can say things like, oh man, that's just what I always wanted. Um, that sense of familiarity is there. Um, there are two more things. One is raw, natural talent. Uh, McGonagall says this, Potter, this is Oliver Wood. Wood, I've found you a seeker. The boy's a natural. I've never seen anything like it. Was that your first time on a broomstick, Potter? Harry nodded silently. Harry has this raw, natural talent that... We see around us, we see people, men and women with, with raw natural talents that almost unfairly they didn't have to, to work hard at to get. And I say almost unfairly because it's like, um, I would love to, to know how to play the piano, but I just can't get my fingers to work like that. And yeah, piano takes a lot of work. But when you combine work with raw, natural talent, you take an amateur and you turn him into a seasoned professional. There's just something different when you add this talent. And like, what does Jesus say about the talents? That we shouldn't hide them. Now, of course, he's talking about um, something completely different. But uh, in English, it, it kind of works as well. We shouldn't bury our talents. Um we should bring them to the altar, as it were. Um, we should put them at the service of the church. 
What are your talents, dear listener? What What is your raw, natural talent? You have something. You have something that God has given you, something that he's given you to build up the kingdom, to build up the kingdom. Are you using it? I know there are many areas of my life where I am not. Gosh darn it, I should be singing in a choir somewhere. I can sing. I have that raw, natural talent. And I'm grateful for that. I am so grateful. My, my, I, my music has taken me around the world. And I should be using that for the beauty of the church and the beauty of the liturgy. Um, so let's, maybe in 2022, let's uh, put our finger on a talent that we have and commit to using it for the building up of the kingdom of God. The last thing these chapters brought to mind was the topic of friendship, because of course, the Halloween, I almost just said Halloween episode, I was thinking of The Office, but the Halloween chapter, the chapter entitled Halloween, is where Harry and Ron and Hermione finally become friends. It starts off terribly. Ron says to Harry, it's no wonder no one can stand her. She's a nightmare, honestly. And unfortunately, Hermione overhears this, and she goes off, and she misses class, which is very unlike her. Um, and she cries, and she has a BF, in the words of uh, the show White Chicks. <laughs> What's a BF? Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to quote it because it's inappropriate for the podcast, but Hermione's having a BF and, um, she gets stuck in a bathroom with a mountain troll and they rescue her from that with a bit of magic. And the text says, from that moment on, Hermione Granger became their friend. There are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. So Hermione Granger is now the friend of Ron Weasley and Harry Potter. I wrote my senior thesis on friendship, um, specifically on the philosophical nature of friendship and social media's role in its cultivation. And there are three, I thought it would be fun to kind of think through this from, um, f from the philosophy of friendship. Aristotle talks about three different kinds of friends. He talks about um, friendships of pleasure, um, friendships of utility, and then, um, I forget the term he uses now, it's been so long since I've looked at that paper, but um, deep, abiding, lasting, let's call them true friends, true friendships. So friendships of pleasure would be friendships that are, are built around a common interest um, or literally pleasure. You might, um, <laughs> you might be uh, friends with benefits, as the kids say nowadays, um, but Common interests would also be friendships of pleasure, pleasurable friendships. So you and I like horses? All right, well, we're in a horse association, and so um, we're friends. Um, friendships of pleasure are great. 
we all have friends. Um, here's the deal. Friendship in general is great. Um, there is a kind of gradation, and there is a sense in which these deep, lasting, abiding, true friendships are quote-unquote better than the other friendships. But um, we all need friends. And we might not have a lot of deep, lasting, abiding, true friendships. I really wish I could remember the term that Aristotle uses. I'm going to look it up and I'll put it after the show notes. Um, in the show notes, after the credits is what I meant. So these friendships are all good. Every friendship is a good thing. The problem is friendships of pleasure break down when you no longer have the same interests as other people. If our friendship is based around the fact that we like chess or we like complicated German board games or we like the TV show Lost or we like, you know, pick your area of interest. If somebody suddenly isn't interested in that thing anymore, then the friendship breaks down. There is no basis for the friendship anymore. And the same is true with friendships of utility um, or useful friendships. Like, you are my friend because I need you. You are my friend because um, we're study partners in our, what, biology class. You are my friend because um, we have to work together at work. And I need co-workers. Uh, you know, we're friends. We're, 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 we are friends. But the problem is, as soon as I don't need you anymore, we're not friends. The friendship breaks down. There's no reason to continue calling each other. That's why there's something beautiful about these true and lasting and abiding friendships uh, which Aristotle calls da, 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 friendships of, oh man, it's really bugging me. It is on the tip of my cerebral cortex. Okay, I'm going to pause the recording because um, this is technology and I can do that. And then when I come back, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound like nothing to you, dear listener. It's going to sound like, whoa, he just remembered. But actually, I'm, go I'm going back to my senior thesis and looking it up. Okay. One, two, three. Friendship of the virtuous. There we go. I found it. A friendship of the virtuous is what Aristotle calls it. And St. Elred of Raveau, writing many, many hundreds of years later, calls it spiritual friendship. But it's the third and highest type of natural friendship. We have friendships of the pleasurable, friendships of utility, and friendships of the virtuous. So those virtuous friends, those deep and lasting and abiding friends who um, are not just friends because we have common interests, are not just friends because we need each other in some capacity, but are friends because we're on the road together striving to live the virtuous life. It's a deep friendship. I think this is what Ron and Harry and Hermione become. 
Now we see traces of utility and we see traces of pleasure. Harry delights in the fact that Hermione does his homework. He is so busy with Quidditch that Hermione does assignments for him and Harry delights in that. Does that mean that theirs is a friendship of utility? No, theirs is a deeper friendship. Though there are aspects of usefulness involved. This would be an interesting, um, yeah, a very interesting paper if I were getting a master's degree in English literature, for example. It would be interesting to talk about the philosophical nature of friendship and um, the friendship among Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Because maybe it starts out as a friendship of pleasure or a friendship of utility, but it certainly grows, I would say, into a friendship of the virtuous. It develops. It deepens, as all friendships do. All friendships develop and deepen over time, or they fizzle out and die. But all good friendships, all lasting friendships, will develop and deepen. Um, and we see the beginnings here of, of a friendship that will last seven books. So we're talking about Quidditch today, and Quidditch is a sport. And I thought I would look up in the Catechism of the Catholic Church every paragraph that has the word sport in it. And I was surprised to find that there are only three. Three paragraphs that talk about support. <laughs> support. Sport. Um, and here they are. The first is uh, paragraph 1882, and this comes under a section called the human community. And it says, quote, certain societies, such as the family and the state, correspond more directly to the nature of man. They are necessary to him. To promote the participation of the greatest number in the life of a society, the creation of voluntary associations and institutions must be encouraged on both national and international levels, which relate to economic and social goals, to cultural and recreational activities, to sport, to various professions, and to political affairs. This socialization also expresses the natural tendency for human beings to associate with one another for the sake of attaining objectives that exceed individual capacities. It develops the qualities of the person, especially the sense of initiative and responsibility, and helps guarantee his rights. The second place that the Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about sport under is um, the paragraph under the commandment to keep the Lord's Day holy. And this is what it says here. Paragraph 2187 Sanctifying Sundays and Holy Days requires a common effort. Every Christian should avoid making unnecessary demands on others that would hinder them from observing the Lord's Day. Traditional activities, sport, restaurants, etc., and social necessities, public services, etc., require some people to work on Sundays, but everyone should still take care to set aside sufficient time for leisure, with temperance and charity, the faithful will see to it that they avoid the excesses and violence sometimes associated with popular leisure activities. 
in spite of economic constraints, public authorities should ensure citizens a time intended for rest and divine worship. Employers have a similar obligation toward their employees. And the last um, place that the Catechism of the Catholic Church mentions sport is under a section entitled Respect for Health. Paragraph 2289 says this, If morality requires respect for the life of the body, it does not make it an absolute value. It rejects a neo-pagan notion that tends to promote the cult of the body, to sacrifice everything for its sake, to idolize physical perfection and success at sports. By its selective preference of the strong over the weak, such a conception can lead to the perversion of human relationships. So I thought these um, paragraphs in the Catechism of the Catholic Church were interesting in how they point to the fact that sports are part of our society. Sports are an integral part of our society, and they should there should be these voluntary associations that spring up around them. And sports might even require some people to work on Sundays in a way that does not do damage to the commandment to keep the Lord's Day holy. At the same time, we should not idolize the body in such a way that demands perfection uh, at sports. So there's a little... Um, a little vignette for you on the Catechism of the Catholic Church's teaching on sports. That's all for today, folks. We'll be back on Saturday morning where I'll sit down with my friend Caitlin Lanning and talk about some very important questions. Tune in. Wizards Theme Stock Media provided by Adam Monroe and Pond5. Shifflet is available on all major podcasting platforms and is hosted and produced by Philip J. Shifflet. Copyright 2022. Until next time, friends, be a saint.